The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Welcome to Big Technology Podcast Friday edition, where we break down the news in our traditional cool-headed and nuanced format. We have a terrific show for you this week. We're going to be speaking about NVIDIA's bombs away earnings results. But really, this is the show where we're going to dive deep on Xi'an and Timu. And to do it, we have an amazing guest with us. John Herman is here with us. He's a contributing editor at New York Magazine. John, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And we're also joined by Ranjan Roy, the uh, writer of Margins. You can get it at readmargins.com. Ranjan, welcome back. Good to be here. Ranjan, how stoked are you? This is going to be the I'm show that so we've all been waiting excited. for. <laughs> the Xi and Timu blowout extravaganza. John, I don't, I don't think I can possibly put into words how stoked Ranjan is for this one because. <laughs> well, I can tell from the newsletter uh, just alone that this is, you know, a subject. I, I, I feel like a Timu notification right now. I'm so over the top. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Well, just we, just one more button. Press one more button. <laughs> advance through one more game. Recommend to one more friend, and it's all going to pay off. <laughs> Absolutely, and we've been sort of, you know, saying, okay, is this the week we do the big e-commerce episode? Is this the week we do it? And I was like, oh, if we could just get John for this, it would really make uh, make the 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 show so great. And you're here, which is awesome. And last week, for those who listened, we went into Shein a little bit. Um, I think this is going to be a way more in-depth discussion covering. I just learned about it last week, so we're going to cover some of the downsides as well. And uh, I think that you folks are going to love it for those listening and those watching live with us on LinkedIn and YouTube. Let's start with NVIDIA. Okay, NVIDIA had basically a historic, not even basically, a historic quarter. Um, it went up 24% on Thursday. Its market cap, as we talk, is $947 million, a billion dollars. So it's getting close to a trillion if you had predicted who was going to be in that trillion range, not many people would have put NVIDIA in there. Um, they have uh, projected $4 billion more than the consensus among analysts in revenue for next quarter. $4 billion more. That's a tremendous amount of money. And its prediction is $11 billion for the coming quarter, which is just huge. Okay. What do you guys make of the fact that NVIDIA, obviously, it's a kind of an AI meme stock, but the money is coming, which is very different from some of these stocks we've seen in the past catch fire? Yeah, I think last week we were talking about one of the biggest problems about the current AI bubble is the fact that there is absolutely no clear business model for the Microsoft, for the Googles. I mean, right now, again, as we say over and over, ChatGPT, every query loses money. So no one has quite figured out how they're going to make money except NVIDIA. The one thing we know among all of these companies, we might not know how this is going to change search and advertising and content creation or whatever else, but we know it will need chips to power it. And I think that's where NVIDIA is sitting very pretty. I'll admit myself, I am kicking myself after seeing those numbers because like this was the most obvious thing to buy <laughs> when this all started, when I've been very interested in this, there's absolutely no reason this should not have been abundantly clear, 
but I didn't. I can't um, play. I can't play in the market like that because of my job. So it's all like my my regrets are all about like calling things wrong or whatever. It's all a, a very silly, stupid game for me. Um, but I remember talking to the founder of Midjourney some point last year about you know the rise of image generation and all this stuff, and and right away he was just like, yeah, the compute is insane. We're spending so much money on on computing like every time and it sort of became a joke among friends as we're using these things like every time we press the button to generate a stupid image it's like we're ble we're bleaching ahead of coral we're you know we're like clearing an acre of rainforest there's just so much power going into these things and it was yeah that was that was always going to be if this if the hype cycle was going to continue it was going to just uh uh result in enormous compute needs and tons of orders for nvidia who you know it it to zoom out a little bit this as someone who grew up at a, like a time where uh you know as a teenager you're you're engaging in the the uh, processor wars between um AMD and Intel you're you're talking about ATI and Nvidia graphics cards which one can run counter strike better and all that stuff it's wild to think that those companies and in particular Nvidia was sitting on this territory that it, they just keep discovering new reserves of like oil or minerals or something on that space that they occupied. They just keep like, obviously they're planning deliberately. Obviously they're, they're investing an enormous amount in R and D, but like it's also incredibly fortunate that here comes crypto. Everyone needs NVIDIA hardware. Here comes AI. Everyone needs more GPU. It's just a wild, wild, uh, uh, electric story. cars right around the corner. Gonna yeah. need more chips as well. <laughs> it's just, there's no stopping thing to me. It's still, you know, do I, am I, am I getting the, the GeForce 4 or am I getting the Radeon 9800? It's just like a completely different scale of thinking about this stuff. But do, do you guys think that there's any, what's NVIDIA's potential downside or how do they lose right now? It seems like even especially against the Intels and the AMDs of the world, they're far, far better positioned. What, what could make them vulnerable? I think there's so much at the front of this AI cycle um, that could get out of hand and they could sort of experience that downstream a little bit. There's so much money pouring in, so many big firms making big commitments. Um, maybe they're very wise about how they handle that kind of order growth and that kind of growth. But like over the story of the last three years for me is how companies that either lucked into something incredible had something incredible, saw incredible growth that was actually based in something, um, how they can still blow it, how like the, the, the sort of like, you know, large tech corporation of this era can somehow like uh, squander an incredible opportunity and lead just because of the, the like strange momentum they have, the, the strange incentives of the markets and, and leadership and, and everything else. I suppose they, they could be exposed to that, but that's, I mean, it seems like good news for them, mostly. I guess uh, who? Wait, who would be the most squandering of big tech? I guess I would put Zoom in there. I think in terms of uh, sitting pretty and then did not capitalize on it in any innovative way. Are yeah. there others that you think of? A there? much a much smaller example. Well, a, a more niche example would be Peloton, where it's like you know expensive product, recurring subscriptions, tons of new customers. 
um, there, there should have been a way to handle that. You know, that like, that's the kind of thing that if you, if you aren't involved in a company like that, if you aren't too close to it or in it or subjected to the like strange novel pressures that you get from the inside, you could write a simple plan that would work, but that's, you know, the outsiders don't run these things. It's a sort of a funny paradox with these companies, but yeah, zoom. Absolutely. you got a bunch of new customers. That should be the end of the story. <laughs> Yeah, Ranjan and just yeah, got rid of know. his Peloton, so perfect example there. I know, yeah. and I don't even I don't even want to talk about this rebrand this week. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen it, but it's too. Wait, much no, what is the yeah. Peloton rebrand? Let's just Wait, take a minute to talk right, about so, it. All uh, right, sorry. If you, if I may, Peloton is no longer a bike company. It's now simply a streaming fitness company, which I don't know why you would do in trying to make the app the centerpiece when you're competing against Apple Fitness or whatever else. Suddenly you're in a whole new competitive landscape. Um, but also they're trying to rebrand themselves away from hardcore fitness people. And I don't tr quite put myself in that category, but at least like, you know, people enjoy working out too the everyday fitness, you know, entry level fitness person, basically they're trying to increase their total addressable market. You can totally picture some slide in a presentation. So they have this whole new, uh, I think it's called like everyone always on or something like that, but they're basically every single strength that they have had as a company, they're completely just giving away, trying to become something new. Yeah. Now they're playing against a bunch of free competitors that are fine, you know, can we go back to the NVIDIA example for, for a moment? Um, because Sam Lesson had this really interesting thread or uh, one of his card posts that he does talking not about quite, how, Not quite a thread, whatever right. those are. The, yeah. So he basically says that, you know, if it's a car analogy, they're not an oil company, they aren't building cars, they're a parts manufacturer that's going to ride the wave of demand and do great for a while. But ultimately, you know, they're going to become commodified. And what do you guys think about that? It makes it makes sense um, if you imagine the demands of the moment extending for a long time. If you think of them a bit like maybe a close competitor like Intel, where they get sort of stuck to a particular type of product in a in a really profound way. Personal computers, um, desktop computers, laptop computers. They are they are then going to have to they're, they're then going to be tied to the cycle of that technology. Uh, so as people move away from from desktops, they have to pivot to you know mobile processors. As mobile processors pivot to like ARM architecture, they have to. They're then sort of ill-equipped to deal with that. If we imagine a, a relatively straightforward progression of AI technology, like building on the same sort of computing systems, uh, uh, maybe flowing through some of the same cloud and computing providers, then maybe yeah, they they sort of uh, they give or, or uh, competitors are left with time to catch up. They end up in a market that gradually becomes more crowded. Um, they are sort of reduced over the long term to, to just, you know, uh, enabling computing power, uh, which if, if you leave that long enough without too much change, obviously seems kind of dangerous. But the, their story recently has also been like being well positioned somewhat coincidentally to handle relatively novel demands from like fast changing technologies. And maybe that's a run of luck. Maybe that's something they can sustain for a longer time. Um, maybe in five years, we're talking about really, really different things. Maybe there's a, you know, with all this talk about, about the, the um, big proprietary models, the open source models running AI uh, uh, services locally versus, 
you know, uh, 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 renting them from providers. Maybe we're looking at a situation in a few years where um, Apple is in an unusually good position because their, you know, their architecture is suited to running certain kinds of software locally. Maybe this is another. I mean, there, there are just a lot of possibilities there um, that I that I wouldn't want to discount. Um, but yeah, if if they sort of won early, then they could they could lose it. If, if we're looking at a ten or twenty year cycle where people just need more of what Nvidia has, like they can't protect it for that long. Yeah, I had a comment that said that the CEO Jensen Wong has just been so good at getting ahead of these trends, which I think is sort of the theme that like, yeah, if they stop today, maybe that would be the case, but they're not stopping. And so that is like one of the big reasons to be a a bull on NVIDIA is just their ability to get ahead of what's coming and then maybe find a way to get to where the market is going. So very interesting week. I'm sure it won't be the last time we speak about them, but definitely wanted to touch on it this week. Let's talk about these companies, she and Timu. I'm sure there are some others. John, you had a great story about Timu in particular. We talked a little bit about Shein last week, but I think to kick off this part of the discussion, why don't you talk a little bit about what Timu is and your experience with it? Because, well, both you and Ranjan have both ordered products from it. So we'd love to kind of hear how that's gone. Yeah. Um, I think most people, if they're familiar with Timu, it's probably from the Super Bowl. Uh, the uh, team who spent, I think it was 14 or $15 million on a pair of spots, uh, it, which was a relatively small part of an enormous marketing campaign to launch an e-commerce, a whole new e-commerce platform um, in the US and a bunch of other countries. Uh, they're based in China, part of uh, PDD Holdings. Uh, I'll only say this once because the pronunciation is bad, but the, the my pronunciation will be horrible. But the they're a, a sort of sister service or platform to uh, Pinduoduo, which is a very large Chinese e-commerce platform that sort of originated with uh, uh, by rec- with, with a system uh, that that recruited local merchants to sell produce, groceries, then budget household goods, then gradually sort of everything. But a big, big player um, in Chinese e-commerce, money from the parent companies being used to fund a huge launch for Timu. So we've got this feeling of sudden visibility, uh, very cheap products, sort of a a somewhat novel app and shopping experience, unless you've used Shein, which is pretty similar, or Wish, which we might remember from a few years ago. But anyway, it's it's suddenly kind of everywhere. Uh, One thing I came across was postal carriers uh, remarking on how many orange envelopes they were delivering on their routes, almost seemingly out of nowhere. Uh, their advertisements across virtually every social media platform, every big ad network, uh, hundreds of millions, allegedly billions of dollars have been spent already marketing this app. And in some ways, it's like a, a little strange. It just, it feels like it kind of came out of nowhere. It's not, it, it, it it's, it's, interesting to use at first if you've never used anything like it, but it's kind of like a large discount shopping app. Um, and so it's it's a little bewildering from like a, an analyst perspective, from a, a consumer's perspective, um, but it really is everywhere. It's really like getting some traction or, you know, that, that marketing spend is paying off. Uh, it's a place where you can buy not everything, but a lot of things. It's not Amazon. It's not like a comprehensive marketplace where you can sort of expect to find virtually anything that you can buy through the mail. It is pretty comprehensive. Um, 
it's you can sort of think of it as as like a very very large discount version of Amazon where products from the cheaper tier and some brands uh, that, that are popular on Amazon on the cheaper side of things, mostly sourced directly from China, are, are really well represented. Um, but if you go looking for for particular things, if you set out with a shopping list, you might not be able to get everything. If you do, it might not be the type of thing you want. But it's shock, often shockingly cheap. It's super gamified. Um, it's very aggressive in its uh, style of promotion. It has sort of imported a lot of um, UX and marketing techniques from its Chinese counterpart. Uh, so to American users, they'll feel sort of new and unusual. Um, and it's like a real strategic play. It's a multi-billion dollar attempt to take on Amazon or at least to penetrate the US market and, and dozens of others from an e-commerce company that is that is based in China with very close relationships to Chinese merchants and, and through them, Chinese manufacturers. And it's also an attempt to build like a big logistics infrastructure that is a little bit more focused on the on on what happens in China. It's 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 sort of like if you imagine Amazon as as you know kind of a last mile service for for Chinese manufacturers, which in a way it it kind of is these days. Um, uh, Timo is is a kind of an attempt to to shore up the logistics on the other side to to create an experience that's as close to Amazon as possible, like relatively quick shipping. Um, yeah, you have a relative. great line in the story that says, if America's retail giants are becoming mere middlemen, why not just cut them out? And this goes to like Amazon building the third party marketplace. Like they initially started first party. So everything that they would sell to you, they would be buying from vendors and then shipping out. And they decided to become more of a marketplace, challenging that third party market, challenging that first party marketplace that they had, bringing the third parties in. And then eventually, they opened up manufacture. Uh, they opened up their sales channel to a lot of Chinese manufacturers, and that's kind of what Amazon is today. So it is interesting that this is sort of what they've become between them and Xi'an, right? I think there's this, and we're going to get to the labor issues. By the way, I heard from people loud and clear there's some labor issues here. I've read up on it. We should definitely talk about it. But it is very interesting how they're cutting out the middlemen, and it sort of leads you to believe like, have U.S. companies put themselves in a position where they're too vulnerable? They've made themselves too vulnerable, and it seems like they're more vulnerable than than we could have thought, especially Amazon. Yeah, I think the quote you had, it was like, made in China, which start, what are called the 1990s, cutting out domestic manufacturing, sold by China, starting to cut out, cut out domestic sellers, and now marketed by China, cutting, cutting out domestic retailers. The idea that at every point that an American retailer gave up part of its value chain, that it made them more vulnerable to this kind of disruption, uh, to me was one of the most interesting parts to think through this because, I mean, I think Amazon, we talked about this last week, is by far the most vulnerable from a Timu or a Shein or both or all these practices because all these companies, because they built out their supply chain, they essentially lowered their own product quality, reliability, the product reviews, like the whole experience of shopping on Amazon, they allowed to degrade in order to sell cheaper stuff and gain more market share on that side. So, so like, do you think Amazon is vulnerable from a Timu? And do you think if not just Amazon, who else, what other retailers or tech companies do you think this actually presents a significant threat to? That um, uh, made in China to uh, marketed from China shift is that's from um, 
uh, Joe at, at Marketplace Pulse, uh, who's, who's a great analyst on these things. And uh, what's weird about it a little is that the like Timu versus Amazon uh, matchup doesn't seem that intuitive if you're just using them both as, as an American uh, uh, customer. It, like they're they're quite different. They they one is more of one kind of feels like a game. It feels like ah, oh, what can I find that's so cheap that I'm not even worried about buying it? The advertising campaign is like shop like a billionaire, which not not in the sense that you can have whatever you want in the world instantly, but in the sense that you can buy things without thinking about it, without worrying about how much they cost because they're I, like I don't four actually bucks. think I I don't think that quite hit me before and now that makes a lot more sense it's actually not bad it's weird yeah. i mean you can you can yeah. kind of like you can kind of approach that from a lot of angles that aren't yeah. so flattering where it's like shop like a billionaire where you don't have to think about the rest of the world or shop like a billionaire where everything every move you I like it at every has, level at every level incredible externalities that, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know ripple through uh civilization but um for timu it is absolutely a direct approach to amazon overseas they're poaching uh, people who've worked uh, with Amazon, uh, more aggressively poaching people who worked with with Shein. Um, they are imagining, I think, that that Amazon is hoping to move up market a tiny bit, not in a big way, but uh, in the sense that they're trying to increase each cart size before they ship, that they're trying to like battle a bit of this reputation that they've accumulated in recent years as kind of a junk shop. Uh, but I, I think um, I think these things will come into line a little bit more obviously uh, stateside because when I was researching this piece, I did find quite a few sellers who are operating on Timu who also operate on Amazon. I found a few who used to operate on Amazon who now operate on Timu. And one thing that's sort of under-recognized here is that in this effort to do something, maybe clean things up a little bit, maybe... Um, regain control of the review system, unclear. Amazon in the last couple of years has banned thousands of overseas sellers, many of them in China, not because they were selling bad stuff necessarily, um, but because they were using marketing tactics that were sort of over the line. They were accusing them often of review manipulation, um, a lot of uh, pretty successful brands that sold stuff that people genuinely liked, maybe uh, uh projectors or um, rechargeable batteries or headphones, you know, they'd include like a, a solicitation for a review in the box or a, a coupon um, if you, if you, you know, wrote a review or something like that, which is over the line policy wise, but resulted in a sense among Chinese merchants and manufacturers who were trying to sell directly through Amazon, who saw Amazon as this wide open portal to overseas markets, uh, that they're kind of at risk, that Amazon has way too much control that building a business around this one channel where, you know, maybe you sell $100 million worth of product a year, but you can't get someone on the phone. And they're kind of treating you in this antagonistic way and, and sort of treating you as a different kind of seller than, than their domestic sellers after years of courting you. There's a real sense, I think, uh, that Amazon is not as reliable a partner as before. And so that will drive some merchants to Timu. Now, Timu has is, is also been, there's a great Wired piece this week about how they are also putting huge pressure on sellers, um, uh, asking some of them to sell at a loss, uh, just to sort of uh, you know keep their contracts or get market share. About how uh, you know Timu itself is just a money hole 
for PDD holdings. Uh, but you know, this is, they're, they're sort of doing, you can, you can think of it as like a very, very fast, um, very, very capital intensive version of the Amazon playbook, which is like, let's move, lose money for a while and get market share. And then everything will sort of work out. I mean, it's not just Amazon anymore that does that, but as a commerce, uh, as a commerce, they were the uh, famous one. Yeah. Yeah. And the Amazon, I mean, the Amazon thing where it's like, oh yeah, you, you're selling, you're selling a dollar for 95 cents or whatever is, it was always sort of a funny joke, but with, with Timu, it's like, you're selling, you know, $10 headphones and losing $20 an order. No, it's no, like that's really what, so severe. The, the, the wired piece, the <laughs> yeah. wired piece, it, they had us in analysis where the average order is $25 and they lose $30, meaning right. they're spending $55 right. in total to actually push it through. And one of the things I thought was most interesting in terms of thinking about like the all the different market and company dynamics to p- get these prices so low, one of the things I had never actually seen before was their logistics partner, J&T Express, which is a large yes. Chinese logistics uh, provider. They are essentially, apparently it costs $14 on average to ship a package. And again, a $25 average order value that they're losing $30 on. 14 of that is going to logistics, which they provide for free. But then JNT Express apparently is trying to go public soon. And so analysts are theorizing that there is also taking on some of this loss to subsidize it so they can build more volume and market share for when they go public. So it's right. just like another piece of this puzzle because obviously everyone's just trying to figure out how do they get things so cheap for the customer and realizing there's almost all these different people in this entire value chain who are ready to lose a little bit of money for you well, that you also, get your $10 or $8 head, uh, headphones. Right. And in addition to that, there's sort of this, this condescending uh, uh, Western perspective that like, oh, this, this is, these are upstarts that are going to come in and, and, and bring these new ways of doing things to the U.S. market. And, and you know, we are not prepared or whatever. But it's like, no, these are, <laughs> these are like mature firms dealing with uh, like domestic retail slowdown, um, dealing with, as you're talking about, uh, you know, these complex calculations about uh, uh, partners going public and, and, you know, recruiting against domestic rivals and stuff. Timu is important. It is like a, a, an ambitious play, but it's the kind of thing that I think domestically might read as like an overambitious expansion strategy from an arrogant company. You know, like we're not the center of the story with PDD Holdings. It's just a very interesting, very, very expensive project uh, by an a already successful uh, foreign firm, which is not the, I mean, th- this has come up with TikTok a lot. It, this is not something that US analysts, reporters, um, also customers uh, are totally used to being like sort of the the, the B story in a, in a plot for a, a tech company. Like normally it's an American tech company getting really big uh, with a, with a sort of clear domestic story and then getting into misadventures overseas. Like we are the misadventures uh, now for, for some of these firms, which is, you know, we live in a, in a global economy, but uh, <laughs> what, what about like, okay. So if the business model and business practices, let's say aren't unique to a Chinese company, but are very, you know, every American firm is potentially, you know, like, uh, pushed hard in that direction, at least, let's say, money losing money to, for grow market share. I, one thing I've been thinking about, I loved one line you had, it's about what, the shopping experience. And again, I have bought on Timu. I 
posted a TikTok of me dumping out a big box of stuff from Timu just to try to be an influencer for a moment. Um, the shopping experience. So you you had a line. It was like you know uh, Timu's new American users express an uncertainty and ambivalence about what they're seeing until the products show out their door and surpass rock bottom expectations with their mere presence. I literally I ordered a bunch of stuff. A few of the, I had like a couple of uh, the, what's the iPhone charger that you can just put your phone on, like the wireless pad. Two of four didn't work, but that was fine. At 50%, they were so cheap that I was like, actually, okay, I guess this is okay. I uh, I ordered a couple of like power strips or some other, I ordered a drone for $12, which is probably, I don't know how that happened, but like, I would say maybe 75% of it worked and that surpassed my rock bottom expectations and I was okay. And uh, and the the aggressiveness for anyone who downloads the app or signs up for an account, it's it's wild. It's actually kind of fun for me as a writer like to see the push notifications there's no punctuation there's no grammar the when you open it there's deal wheels popping up left and right you're getting $70 off $50 you don't know what's happening there's this ad that's circulating around the entire internet i don't know if you've gotten it it's this weird finger that's like poised and apparently it's a, like a fingernail uh, to practice painting nail polish on or whatever. I don't know. Basically the whole thing to me is like everything that everyone has always said who works in e-commerce that American shoppers would never go for and are above and just being like, no, we're deep down. Everyone is happy to run after these kind of practices. But isn't it more than just the American shopper? I mean, part of this, and I think this is important for us to talk about when we talk about shop like a billionaire and the negative externalities there and the fact that this has been able to be so cheap. And John, I'm going to let you answer Ranjan's question for sure, but I just think we need to point out what's going on behind the scenes in terms of the labor situation here. So this is another New York Magazine piece about Shein, right, which is, again, coming along this wave with Timu. And it's uh, based off of a Channel 4 report that workers receive a base salary of 4,000 won per month, which is roughly $556, to make 500 pieces of clothing per day. And their first month's pay is withheld from them. And then as another factory, workers receive the equivalent of four cents per item. And workers in both factories were working up to 18-hour days and were given, off, given one day off a month. And in one factory, the outlet found women were washing their hair during lunch breaks and workers were penalized two-thirds of their daily wage if they made a mistake on a clothing item. So I wonder, I mean, when we talk about these low prices, when we talk about, like, you know, bringing in a model that's not the not American, of course, it's like a marketing model, but it's also a labor model that we need to discuss here. And quite frankly, just like I was looking at um, Shein after we talked last week, and I was like, oh, ready to buy stuff. And then, you know, I so I couldn't, once I read this stuff, I said, okay, like I'm, I'm happy to pay more in other places. And I wonder, A, like if, if that is, if we think that's still part of the situation and B, eventually that's going to catch up with these companies, I would imagine. I think, I mean, it's like, we can get as broad as, as, as we want about this. It's very hard to say with any certainty that spending like $12 instead of $8 on uh, a on a product from a brand you've never heard of, manufactured somewhere that you don't really have a grip on, is going to be any more ethically produced. Um, we're, we are sort of 
in virtually all of these conversations talking about about uh, uh, things that are not that, that are hard to know because they're meant to be hard to know. Um, but I do, and, and I and also it's worth noting that that Amazon, in its gradual shift over nearly two decades now to a third party merchant system, is is selling goods uh, through through merchants that are that are based overseas. It is it is therefore insulated uh, even even another level than just uh, uh, you know a brand that that manufactures overseas from the source of the goods that are sold through the platform. So you buy a T-shirt through Amazon. It to you it is an Amazon Prime T-shirt, um, but in what you're what you're sort of doing there is buying something that is yet another layer removed from uh, from accountability. Um, so you're already in sort of like a, a a bad situation there in terms of knowing what's happening. Um, and you can make, you can make reliably, you know, some assumptions, uh, about working conditions at the $12 shirt factory. Um, what's interesting about Timu and Shein is that these are hyper growth companies, uh, moving products through a system that currently, and, and, you know, uh, in theory perpetually is extremely low margin. Like these are companies that are undercutting Amazon. So if you're, if you're, if you have a manufacturing operation in China and you th- see Amazon as a channel to foreign markets, you're also imagining even after all the the um, uh, Amazon fees and the fulfillment fees and everything else that you're, you're getting some margins. Like this is a pretty good deal. You're getting access to a really big market with a lot of fairly wealthy customers ordering things at you know with some markup. With Shein, you're getting well. With Timu, I, I think is, is a clearer compare a clearer analog here, you're, you're hearing reports from factories that have manufactured even for Shein, where Timu is giving them some leeway as, as independent merchants, um, but making extraordinarily uh, 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 severe demands for production targets, um, for pricing, you upload your products into Timu, and they're just like, this should be cheaper. With Shein, you know, the company will be ordering directly, they have a more direct relationship with suppliers, although they are also working in a marketplace model now. They're just saying like, uh, okay, you produced this many units last month, can you do twice as many? Um, and the the people running these these factories are like, well, do we lose this client? Or do we just push even harder? Like, it's so obviously unsustainable from like a human point of view. It's so obviously exploitative. There is no fuzzy like, well, we can't really tell. We can't really see. There is no world in which a $3 skirt is in in any way ethical. It's like pure, it's like $3 of skirt and like $10 of externality and then a million dollars of sort of ethical externality. <laughs> you know, there's no unit for that. It's just pure it's just pure externality at at some point. And so that's unavoidable with team it's like this fun strange environment shop like a billionaire games everywhere promotions all the time coupons in your push notifications invite your friends it's like this this wild but you're you're absolutely just sort of uh you're spent you're not just losing money for a company you're you're spending something else as you as you use this and it's just it's just completely unavoidable but i mean of course it is avoid people avoid it all the time but it's right there it's just so in your face well, in terms of the unavoidable, that's one of the things that's most fascinating to me because on one side, you see endless studies, Gen Z wants to buy things sustainably, but fashion is going to be slower, 
everyone wants to buy ethically and you see you know endless retailers moving that direction but then she and sales are up i think they overtook h&m we saw last week 23 billions fastest growing retailer in history timu is exploding i mean again but going back to the let's take the u.s consumer are they going to be shopping on these sites in a year or two or like is this something that's fun temporary and you get your items and again they surpass your rock bottom expectations and that's fine the first time this maybe the second time but after a while it gets boring even amazon for me i mean now i'll probably buy like batteries and stuff on there or if i need something pretty quick and I don't want to go to the store, but overall I don't definitely do not look at it as like a shopping destination to browse and find inspiration and other things like, like do will people shop at these places in a year or two? One, one thing about that, that startling, like, you know, $30 loss figure or whatever it was, is that that's not just the product that that's not just the result of, of, you know, direct operational things and products and manufacturing and labor costing this much and the, the customer paying that much. It's so much marketing. It's un- unbelievable. It's like already, you know, the, the, I think the Wired piece projected something like $4 like billion dollars next year. Yeah, it was year, 1. 1. Just, 1.4 billion last year, 4.3 billion next year, or right. I think in 2023. And so I think we can kind of, we, we can't, we don't know how, how real this is. Like if you're giving stuff away to people, um, obviously you will be very popular. If you are super visible with app install ads in every possible channel, you are going to be the top app unless you're just completely useless for a very long time. And so there, I think there are two, there are two ways to sort of like guess at what might happen. One, and, and I feel like this is, this is a little bit, I think people do miss this a little bit with, with Timu is that they are just playing this like heightened Amazon strategy and they are selling a lot of things that are actually fine. I talk about the rock bottom expectations. Um, you, you mentioned some of these totally absurd products. They get advertised a lot. But the presence of sellers that are that are popular on Amazon is really striking to me. They are seeing this as potentially another channel. And if it works for them, you know, if this is a place uh, I mentioned in the piece, there, there are areas that I just pay really close attention to in all these years of researching the sort of fringes of Amazon. Um, but you know, personal electronics, uh, bicycle stuff. There, are, there are brands that are absolutely not household names in any real sense. But if you are deep in like Amazon, uh, you know, seller world, are big, pretty big names that make like serviceable discount items that people buy a lot on Amazon. That people kind of, frankly, associate with Amazon now in a way that's more complicated than I think a lot of analysts and pundits would suggest. Where it's like, oh, this is cheap stuff with with sort of nonsense names, you know, this is Amazon is just getting worse and worse. That's also kind of an, that, that's part of the appeal of Amazon for, for many segments of customers, either people who don't have much money to spend or people who are kind of looking for a deal. Like the Amazon brand has a certain identity now that's very diffuse and very weird, um, but, but real and has some value. I'm sure Amazon would prefer, you know, people think of them as, as, as you know, both quality pre- premium and, and convenient, yeah. but there, there's some, they've definitely discovered some value with the, with the, um, the quote unquote, Amazon brands, not the Amazon brand brands, but the, the, uh, you know, so there, there is a world where they commit to that, this money, you know, the, the spend kind of pays off. They get a foothold. People think of them as a place to get that kind of stuff cheaper. 
But the other story, the cautionary tale here is Wish, which now, uh, you know, it's been almost 10 years since they since they really kicked off. Um, they started as a, a, an ad tech company and then sort of pivoted to commerce. And they really specialized in direct from China, extremely cheap stuff. Um, when you talk about rock bottom expectations, sometimes it just wouldn't show up. It would, it would, it was basically instantly trash, but occasionally it wasn't. It was almost like you were, the, the, the products themselves were often sort of secondary to the experience of just getting the, the pleasure of buying something for 99 cents. And then it shows up four weeks later. It's sort of like a, a, a much worse version of, of Timu and working as a merchant on Wish was miserable. It was basically all overflow products. It wasn't any kind of uh, company you would want to build a business in. Um, it was also based in the United States. It didn't have quite that direct connection to manufacturing in China, although you know they worked hard to sort of establish one. Didn't have a useful logistics infrastructure to start with, um, but they also spent, huge, they were the top spenders on, I believe, uh, 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 Instagram, Snapchat, um, I don't know about Twitter, certainly big spenders on Google for like a year or two, hundreds of millions of dollars. And of course they were hugely popular. And of course people were writing their stories like, what is Wish? You know, it was not quite the scale, but it was the version of this that is purely not uh, interested in, in product quality or or anything else. It had sort of discovered a series of like loopholes in, in the system, a loophole in how advertising works, a, a way to rapidly gain customers to acquire customers of a certain sort very quickly uh, literal like at loopholes in the global postal system um that have sort oh, wait, of actually up since then but but speaking of because you mentioned wish was a us-based company one of the other angles of this i find fascinating and i'm curious to see how this develops is so timu now advertises they are a boston-based company proudly on their About Us page. Um, yes. Uh, Sheehan, I believe, I think they opened a Dublin office and are like going to start positioning themselves. But but both, both these companies very clearly are trying to move away from the China origin story in their names, in their store, in their branding. Like, how do, how do you see this playing out so, both politically, both from the consumer side? I don't know, um, but I just I encountered this when I was working on the the Timu story. I don't know what the state of, I don't know what the state of things is with with Xi'an. Um, I know it's obviously like a, a, a sensitive subject, but uh, PDD Holdings opened an office in Dublin. Um, Timu, as a subsidiary, is based in Boston. Uh, Everything happens in Shanghai. It's ob everything obviously happens in Shanghai. That's where the actual main office is. That's where the the most important executives are. Um, that's where the core of the business is. That's where the platform that's subsidizing Timu is. Um, but there, I think it was February of this year. Their filings, because they're publicly traded uh, in the United States as well, they're listed in the United States rather as well um, on the Nasdaq. Uh, started listing Dublin instead of Shanghai. And I reached out to them, didn't hear back. Um, a few other reporters have, have tried to get into this. The, the company is uh, messaged differently depending on the audience in um, earnings calls, in, in, um, in marketing in China. It's very much like, no, we are a proud Chinese company. Um, 
of course we are. What do you mean? It couldn't be more obvious. Uh, but then you have this like, uh, uh, you know, not so subtle, but also not, uh, uh, not exactly publicized change in incorporation that is hard to separate from like this increased tension in the United States about overseas company uh, companies. Um, and that's also interesting to think about in, in the uh, longer tradition of American companies uh, doing whatever they can to become sort of Irish for, for financial reasons. Like <laughs> Ireland is offering a lot to a lot of companies in a lot of places, uh, apparently. And it's interesting to, it'll be interesting to see if they can actually offer anything to a company that feels like it has political liabilities in the United States. It seems can I, can transparent I just, enough oh, yeah. that I, I don't think yeah. there's a political advantage, but I don't know. Can I just ask, uh, does it make our society a little bit sick that we keep gravitating towards these companies and products that have such low prices and you know want us to ignore some of the externalities? I mean, the fact that we're going to, the, the fact that Shein and the fact that um, Timu are growing so much, despite what they're doing to the people that are working on these products and sometimes the quality of the products, right? I had someone, you know, send me a story about potential chemical issues with, you know, one of these, because of course, like you're going to get those if they're that cheap, but like, what does it say about us that these are the companies that are rising to the top? You, you won't get me, uh, we won't, we won't get too far. You won't get, you won't get, I won't get too far, uh, into, into politics here, but you're not going to get me to suggest anything except that this is about you know wealth inequality i'm not gonna make a i'm not gonna make a cultural case for like all right hold on how about how about you mentioned uh you know you've watched the fringes of amazon and the internet for a long time to me this is kind of like a fascinating it's almost like the fringes becoming coming to the forefront and becoming the central part the core of this new product and this new business like how much weirder and crazier could shopping get like uh, do, do you the, see this the, as a continuation of the weirdness of the fringes of amazon that have gotten us here and can it get weirder because this is a question that alex and i always talk about can it get stupider can it get weirder yes and and yes um <laughs> right. and one of the one of the ways so there was this fascinating uh I think it was right after um, the 2016 election, the chief executive at Wish or at Context Logic or whatever was made this case at some conference that uh, Wish was the, um, the 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 unheard American, just like the Trump voter. Like no one saw us coming, just like no one saw Trump coming. Um, now that's, you know, that was a message from the Trump campaign. That was a message from Wish. They were sort of like speaking in the same language. And what was interesting about that wasn't that it was really right, but it was that there, there was this sort of appeal to something that is fundamentally kind of dark or this description of something that was fundamentally kind of like a dark impulse, like, you know, let's get back at our political enemies. Let's have a vengeful political movement, whatever. Or let's just, let's make things, let's buy things that are so cheap that they're free and who cares if they're, who cares where they come from and who, like sort of just, you know, distillations of these expressions of, of, of something. Um, the fact that, that, that was available to, to, to wish as like a, as a, as a rhetorical strategy was kind of interesting. It's like, what's, what was missed here? What was missed is that there are people who, who can't afford to spend much on stuff. 
um, because you're not the avatar for for fixing that. Like you're not solving anything there. You're you found you found a problem and you found a way to kind of like maybe make it worse or something. <laughs> like you you're exploiting a problem, not fixing it. So there's something there's certainly something there. But um, yeah, it doesn't say it doesn't say anything. It doesn't say anything great about about anyone. It's it's the um, it's it's kind of. Eh. I would, but again, I would stress that I would say sort of the same thing about about uh, majority of of American, uh, you know, consumer habits. They're they are symptoms of something that is that is quite obviously a, a somewhat somewhat ill. Now, there's one more thing that I found super interesting about this story, which is kind of like the TikTokification of everything. So, John, you write in social media terms, this is about Timu. It's a bit like TikTok, which swaps the illusion of control created by follower and friend models for total submission to a top-down recommendation algorithm programmed to meet its users' base desires, or at least keep them occupied for a little while. And, like, it is interesting to watch so much of the internet transform into this version of, you know, it's not necessarily, you know, you dictating, it's the internet dictating to you, whether that's social media with recommendation algorithms, whether that reta- that's retail. And I, I wrote down this question, like, is this sort of like what comes after Web 2.0? Like, maybe this is the real Web 3, right? It's just like a world where Total you just have control. the algorithms take it over is... and you sit back. And it's just a very interesting trajectory for the internet that we're starting to see take hold. It's so weirdly passive. And, and I, it, this, always, this always sort of bugs me with, with so much of the conversations around like generative AI and, and discussions that try to draw a line between this new class of tools that we're engaging with as AI and the last like five years of the internet changing in these really profound ways. Like, you know, TikTok is the clearest example of like the, the recommendation engine growing to become the entire product. But Google's more like that now than it's ever been. When people talk about Google feeling worse and worse, they're really talking about like the very, very assertive application of machine learning um, in new ways, not that it wasn't applied before, but, you know, increasingly sophisticated, increasingly like alienated from its source material, machine learning models that are producing the desired internal results and, and leaving users kind of like unsettled or like, or, you know, engaged and using Google, but also kind of thinking like, this sucks a little, like, I'm not fine. This doesn't work. Like I thought it was supposed to like, what kind of system am I using? Amazon has become a lot more like that too. Amazon is like you're at war with these machine learning systems that that like uh, interpret reviews and produce search pages and recommend products and stuff like that. It's it's you know kind of quaint next to what you get on something like Timu, but it's on the same spectrum. Um, and so yeah, it's it is like a move towards something that's that's really really passive, and that I, I think that has to reach a point with shopping. Um, where it becomes a, a problem. Um, it certainly feels like it's doing that with Google, where the aggressiveness of the system that you're engaging with is starting to interfere with the actual act of searching. This is supposed to be this thing that you're doing and you are controlling and this this tool is helping you do. Instead, you're kind of just like using Google. Uh, with TikTok, it's like the stakes are lower. You, you're kind of, the whole point is to just spend time there and to waste time or, or to like, you know, get distracted or, or enjoy something or figure something, find something out. But it's very like the discovery is the point. But with shopping, I, there have to be limits to that. It works now on Timu and, and Shein um, uh, 
to some degree where you can kind of just get lost and be like, well, I don't know, this thing, I've been notified five times in a row with deals and this thing now costs 99 cents. And it does kind of remind me of things I've seen somewhere else. Maybe I should buy it. Or like, uh, you know, I, I am going to jump on Timu and search for headphones and don't really see what I want, but I kind of feel like I want to buy something now. Let's just see where it takes me. Like, like there's something there. And there's also something to just the in incredible cheapness of it, where while you're doing that, right next to you is the opportunity to buy something for $3. But when you like shopping is also a way to get things that you need. And like uh, a system that is is sort of just like, like uh, ushering you around all the time, it's comparable to like going to an open air market or something or, or, a, or a, 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 a car dealership where the, the sales or the sales tactics are so aggressive that you're sort of like, I need to leave here if I want to like achieve my goal here, which is like getting food or finding a new car, like I need to re-engage with something that I have a little more control over. I like going going into this Memorial Day weekend, recognizing we have ceded <laughs> all control over our free will on the internet, one by one. Yeah. Also, <laughs> I, I, I meant to I yeah. meant to mention this up top, but the uh, the AI apocalypse is has actually occurred. We have created a, a general intelligence. It is a car dealer. Um, and it is in charge of all the apps we use. So, you know, look out. <laughs> it all took right. over. <laughs> well, John, <laughs> thank you note. so much for joining. Yeah, I mean, an amazing show. I, I think that, like, you have such deep insight into this. We definitely need to do it again. Um, red meat for Ron John, which we always <laughs> love to serve up. <laughs> yes, as you And um, absolutely. So thanks, John. Thank you, Ron John. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Next week, a conversation uh, on next week on Wednesday, a conversation with two tech reporters, Bobby Allen of NPR, Ryan Mack of The New York Times. We're going to talk about the latest with TikTok in terms of regulation and bans. We're going to talk about Twitter's role in the 2024 election. Elizabeth Holmes uh, potentially reporting to prison next week and then the case for AI regulation and whether it's going to happen. Thanks again, John. Thanks again, Ron John. Great to have you all listening with us every week on Fridays and on Wednesdays, and we will see you next time on Big Technology Podcast. <laughs>